Welcome back to Sports and Society. It's March 1st. I'm, this is Brad. I'm here with Kyle. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing pretty well. I'm looking forward to talking about what interrupts our sports world and hopefully maybe gleaning a little bit about what that says about what we value and the extent to which we value it mm-hmm. or maybe something along those lines. Yeah. How about you? Yeah. I'm, well, um, you know, I'm not wearing a mask yet uh, in reference to our, our future conversation here. So things are going well. So good. Good. <laughs> um, but yeah, what, uh, what have you been paying attention to this week, man? So, uh, I want to mention a couple things. So I'm going to try and do a page out of my book here. All right, you got a couple? No, I just usually do. This week I've only got one. (laughs) We're switching places. (laughs) Well, I I guess I just want to point out that these things are happening, and we can pay attention to them as as we deem fit. But uh, the Olympic trial marathon yesterday. Galen Rupp won the men's, and then what was significant, I think, about the women's race was the size of the field uh, was four times the size of the uh, last Olympic trials for women. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that growth, I think, is significant and interesting. Uh, but then I also found it worth pointing out that Galen Rupp was wearing the Nike Vaporflies. Um, uh, so there's that there. Uh, the other thing that really upset me, I don't know if you saw the piece about bare knuckle fighting. No. Uh, so ESPN published a piece that had been in uh, research phase for five years, I think. Mm. They started researching it in 2014. Uh, but there's always been uh, underground bare knuckle fighting mm. in the United States. And the last time it was sanctioned was in the early 1800s. Uh, so 200 years without a state-sanctioned bare-knuckle fight, uh, but they are happening now. And uh, several states, I think it's five or six states now, have sanctioned bare-knuckle fighting. And partly the way they got around it is interesting is that they're held on reservations. Mm. Uh, and so the populations on those reservations operate under different protocol. And so the sanctioning became more possible. But nonetheless, it's it's only been sanctioned for a little bit, and it's growing very, very quickly. Uh, but there is also still a lot of pushback against it. Uh, nonetheless, it sounds really horrific, um, like just really horrific, uh, all the way down to like uh, part of the reason it's – it hasn't been sanctioned is because it leads to so much deformity uh, on the actual faces of the mm-hmm. fighters. Um, they're actually making the argument that it is better for the brain than MMA and football, uh, which is interesting uh, because it's and, and better than boxing because it's not repeated uh, damage to the brain. It, it's quicker and swifter. But at any rate, the whole thing is. Um, I, really disturbing to me. Uh, stupid uh, argument. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it's a long piece. There's a lot of elements to it that are worth talking about. They they won't release who the investors are. So the investors are all private investors at this point. But it's believed to be that most of the investors are uh, bookmakers or people that have previously been outlawed from sports for bookmaking. So it's just incredibly seedy, 
And I think one of the most depressing parts for me that is primarily who the fighters are right now are men and women that are either retired or had kind of lousy UFC careers. Mm. Um, so it's kind of the washed up, so to speak, fighters. And so apparently a lot of these guys are like in their late 40s and they're fighting against someone that's like 21 and they just get like pummeled. Um, it, it sounds so horrible to me and I, it, it depressed me for a whole day after reading about it and putting it in the context of Trump's America. It just, it, it's depressing to think about. So hopefully bare knuckle fighting is not here to stay and we, we can figure out how to get rid of this. Um, Fascinating. You know, it, uh, first off, I find it so utterly distasteful to do this on a reservation um, mm -hmm. and take advantage of all of the difficulties that come along with that situation. Um, yep. But then, uh, you know, the whole stupid thing is asinine. But the immediate question that it raises for me, because, of course, I'm wanting to distance myself from this the brutality of it immediately and not think about it, because... I don't want to be depressed for a day like you were. Um, yeah. is makes me think about when we legalize something we know has public health dangers because we can control it and when we do it, when we'd have to ban it altogether. I think about it particularly in reference to marijuana, of course, because we're dealing with this, this um, situation right now where we know that, you know, smoking and imbibing marijuana wads can have significant positive impacts also has some negative health impacts as well and yet there's a very clear role and i think no one's going to argue at this point that it should be legal or no one that is in our circle anyway is going to argue that it should be legal and that it's uh it should be regulated because the the harm that's coming from it on the black market is way worse than the harm that's coming from it being legal in the world um, right. On the flip side, we've got a situation here where you'd think maybe if the, because it's not like this stuff is never not going to happen. There's always going to be jackasses that are in their backyards paying hobos to fight each other, and they're going to be complete assholes forever that want to do that. So if you regulate right. it, can you change it? And I think this is a case where no, because of how distasteful it is in general, you have to take a stand against outlawing it altogether. Um, that's kind of where I come down because there's no in between on it. So, um, it's just an interesting kind of thought experiment of where that line is for me between when you ban something and when you regulate it because it's healthier to regulate it than it is to, to not. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm, I'm right there with you and it, it was probably the thought that I spent the most time with after reading about it as well of, uh, the extent to which we are going to engage with this and allow for it. And I think for me, at this point, I, I still feel like I need to read more about it and think more about it of where the line is. But I think when something is being commodified within the context of entertainment it is where I'm willing to get off uh, kind of the, the boat and say, I, no, no. Um, and it, it also has to do, I guess, with the nature of the entertainment. Um, so when the nature of the entertainment is to brutally inflict harm on someone else for a patron's entertainment, I think I'm willing to say, like, yeah, we're, we're not going to allow that. Um, I will be forever grateful that my father um, 
talked about the distaste he found in America's Funniest Home Videos watching people hurt themselves. Um, yeah. Because even as I would watch it growing up and find it funny, I would have that little niggle in the back of my head that's like, wait a minute, is this something I should be finding funny? Um, and I, mm-hmm. the more older and older I get, the more distasteful I find that form of entertainment. I agree. And it's it's fascinating to kind of zoom out a little bit and think about why and for what reasons the whole fail video world uh, persists mm-hmm. and perpetuates itself. And I can't help but think of how closely tied it is with how learning the masculinity of American youth of like it is so closely tied right to groups of boys standing around a computer laughing at someone else failing mm-hmm. uh is you a ubiquitous image mm-hmm. yeah and that's what the um there was one female fight, but the fights that ESPN went to, um, they said they struggled to find women in the audience. Hmm. It was primarily white men. I mean, that's not surprising, is it? Not surprising. Yeah. Although I will say, I don't. Um, that 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 statement feels a little misleading to me, in the sense that yes, it's probably white men right now, but mm-hmm. I don't think that that masculinity that's involved is limited to. True. to whiteness i think that that is kind of pervasive across the 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 racial spectrum there right um, yeah that's a good point but what about you hopefully you have something yeah I, I kind of have an uplifting story this week good good <laughs> uh, i've been really fascinated i don't know why the celtics and the nba have become my favorite team um, yeah. uh, maybe it's cause their coach and I are practically have the same name. Um, <laughs> uh, I do love his story of coming from a college coach and the way that he's coached that team. But, um, they just, mm-hmm. I feel like everybody on that team is, I, I like in some level and that's so much better to see them without Kyrie this year. But I've been particularly captivated these past few weeks by Jason Tatum. Um, mm-hmm. and just this, this thought of how one becomes a star in these leagues, and like mm-hmm. you know, we've seen flashes. I remember I watched uh, a game at Cameron when uh, it was actually a game that Duke lost to NC State when Dennis Smith Jr. was playing for NC State, and I remember being on the bus back uh, and have been really impressed during the game by Jason Tatum. Just the moves that he was doing were really polished. Uh, and someone on the bus back, um, which was a bus to a nursing home, mind you, so it was a bunch of seventy-plus-year-olds, and and then Sarah and I, um, great, <laughs> uh, was talking about how. Um, uh, you know, when he stays a couple of years, he'll really be something. I was like, he's not going to stay. Uh, yeah. And now looking at him like that first year in the NBA, seeing that he had the potential, and now to see that potential come to fruition has just been really fascinating and thinking about how you become a star uh, and con- juxtaposing it with someone like Zion who's come in as a star immediately in John Morant versus these folks that kind of grow into it, the – the Jimmy Butlers and the, these other folks that take some time, or then it clicks at some point. I just find that whole journey really fascinating, and it, and and it speaks to um, uh, the hard work and the and the craft that goes into these guys' uh, efforts every day. And I think that I just find that really compelling. Yeah, I love that. I I also find that really compelling, and I the Zion example, I think helps to illuminate something that's really interesting about it. And I think I would argue that the reason 
Zion is an outlier is because of his physicality mm-hmm. and uh, what his body can do that Jason Tatum's body cannot do, and how to be to play like the three or the four or even um, anything except the five, um, or anything where you're not the biggest one in your space. Uh, how much craft goes into it. And I think that these exceptional athletes coming out of college and not immediately being stars and having an effect on NBA games like shows how nuanced and how specific and how uh, there's such an expertise to being a star in the NBA, uh, that it truly is something that is learned and that takes an incredible amount of time and patience and practice on top of athletic ability. Um, So I I think for me, it points to like what makes the NBA so compelling and so interesting and so popular uh, is it really is so finely tuned. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think this, this highlights that to some extent. You know, it really is, you know, there's this whole argument, right, about how the NBA is boring because there's no defense and all this stuff, which clearly they haven't watched playoff basketball. If you think that right now, um, right. or mind you, the last, uh, the last 30 minutes of the all-star game, which were freaking amazing. We haven't talked mm-hmm. about that, but my goodness, that was a revelation of what an all-star game could be. Yeah. Um, uh, but it is, I, it's fascinating, the craft of it. And I think it also speaks to the intelligence of these folks, like to go mm-hmm. through and be able to analyze it. And then in that moment, they're making, you know, hundreds of snap decisions on the court, every possession about where to be, where to do, and mm-hmm. all of those things are what wind up in that twenty-point average. But that doesn't uh, it doesn't show up on a stat line other than that your averages go up incrementally as you learn all of those, those little tidbits. Right. Yeah, and I I find it so different than something like Major League Baseball expertise. Um, while I think being a great hitter does take uh, a, a semblance or a version of what we're talking about. Um, I, I feel like these sports that are uh, maybe just a, a little bit more physically taxing in that your whole body is at work the whole time uh, and you're constantly moving and there's so much motion and decision-making that needs to happen uh, that the NBA is probably at the top of the heap for me of uh that version of athleticism combined with the mental aspect uh, and all of it working together to be successful. Well, I think that that's, there's an excellent add-on to this, which is just that um, it's so physically demanding that uh, I think it's what we see with folks like Jason Tatum is it takes you two or three years for your body to physically be ready to yeah. do it. And so, I mean, everybody complained about Jason Tatum not driving more and i don't think any of us understand how physically taxing it is to drive the basketball because i mean that's always was the complaint with lebron right is like if he drives to the basket he will get there and have a 70 percent shot of making a layup every single time but that's so physically draining to do that in a way that no one that's not there can understand yeah Um, and so just to see these guys grow into their bodies and i've always been convinced that that's why this UVA basketball team is so good is because they by the time you're a senior in a UVA basketball program you are as strong and physically capable as an NBA player and that their strength and conditioning Mm -hmm. is second to none and that gives them a huge advantage over everybody else Mm -hmm. 
They had a big win last night, didn't they? They did. I mean, man, this is an ugly season, but I'll take it. (laughs) 52-50, my goodness. Yeah. Um, Well, shall we get on to our main topic? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Well, for those of you that have been living in your bubble, uh, stay in your bubble because we're facing a global pandemic at the moment. It's very exciting, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so yes, coronavirus, COVID nineteen uh, is is sweeping the globe at this point. There's wide belief that it will be a, pretty much everywhere in the not too distant future. Um, it, it's not as deadly as SARS or MERS, although it's in the same family, and it uh, is still about estimated 10, 20 times as deadly as the flu, somewhere between around a 1% fatality rate or mortality rate. I can never remember which one to use. Um, uh, so something very serious, although it's not uh, not going to kill all of us, it's something very serious that we need to be thinking about, and it's changed the world of sports. Uh, I'll just give a couple examples here. We know that there's been a number of Serie A games in Italy that have either been canceled or uh, played before empty stadiums. We saw a Six Nations rugby game between Ireland and Italy be canceled. We've seen a number of things like the indoor track and field championships been postponed. We saw the UAE tour, perhaps the most most uh, interesting thing for me as a cycling fan was that two maintenance men on one of the teams at the cycling first uh, cycling world tour event of the year uh, here in the UAE uh, tested positive and so the whole tour was shut down all of the riders have been put on quarantine in the hotel uh, they'll have to stay there at least 14 days now so I mean we're seeing this rear its uh, rather ugly head and changing the sports world already but it's uh, there's only seems to be more to come so uh, anything I miss in there Kyle? Uh, no, that's a good introduction. Um, I was, I had a couple other things on the list. Uh, the Formula One race in Shanghai in April uh, has been postponed without a date to run the race yet, uh, which each race is uh, estimated to be like a billion dollar endeavor, uh, all things considered. And preseason baseball in Japan has also been uh completely canceled without any start date set yet um so i that those last two for me it seemed really significant insofar as uh if mlb mlb was postponed without a date in the future of when it would start back again what that would mean if anything mm-hmm. like would we care or would that I mean, I, I, I don't think it would get to a point to where we would, you know, like, uh, strike because there's not baseball in America. I can't, like, see revolution happening because there's not baseball. But I do think it would be super significant in what it would mean for our collective imagination and our kind of collective consciousness of what we are as a um, a community at the national level. And so I think one of the things that stands out for me in this conversation of what the virus reveals to us about the world in which sports exist is uh, how often sports are collectively working to create that collective consciousness. Um, And so even if we're not MLB fans, 
if we just have the knowledge that Major League Baseball exists, it kind of works to like solidify our concept of America, is that there is this entity out there, this geographic physical space uh, that can be traversed by these baseball teams. And all these baseball teams work together to make MLB, and MLB works together to prove to us that there is such thing as America. And so that's kind of grandiose, but I would imagine that there's a lot of hardcore baseball fans in Japan. And I think for preseason baseball to be canceled would create a sort, a sort of alarm or at least just like a reconfiguring of like, whoa, this is changing our collective understanding of what our country is at the moment. Does that make sense? It does. And I think that sports are an excellent way in here because I think that reality is what we're talking about is much bigger than this, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's a, uh, you know, I I am probably on the more pessimistic side because I haven't seen us being able to control this and we've been very inadequate at it thus far. And it kind of leads me to believe that, you know, we all should be prepared in the next little bit for all the schools in our communities to be closed for an indefinite period of time for, you know, you have to work at home and it's going to change what it means to be a society in some way, shape or form. I think you see that some of these videos that have come out of, uh, of Wuhan have been fascinating if only because it's about what is life like. And so like some of these big apartment buildings have become, you know, really interesting communities in terms of how people play together um, but mm-hmm. also, like, you're not out in public space. And that's been a big part of my life is understanding community and public space from from my work perspective. And, you know, what does it mean that everyone is scared to be in a public space anymore? Um, and so I think sports is an excellent indicator of that and can be a big deal. So I think about, um, you know, going back to your sense of identity in baseball, that you know, during World War II, there were many sports leagues that were shut down. You know, they shut down auto racing here in the U.S., but um, the commissioners and the people that be in baseball asked Roosevelt whether they should shut down, and he told them no to go ahead for morale reasons, that he thought it was important for Americans to have baseball to rely on. Um, and I think about this particularly in the sense of if we're all shut up inside um, and we don't have sports to watch, what entertainment do we go to in that moment um there's a lot of fascinating questions there did base did did baseball take off a couple years or at least one season i think baseball continued but many of the best players did not participate so it was almost like a farm league system for there for a while right right Um, that's mine it was also when the women's league was playing that's right yeah yeah yeah. What other big events did you have on the list that um, were canceled or upset at certain points in time? Yeah, so we, we, we kind of did some brainstorming here about what um, when the world has interjected itself in the sports world and kind of what has happened in response to that. And I, I think we can see a variety of responses here. One, you know, I think we can look at something like uh, Major League Baseball and World War II and the Tour de France, uh, which was, uh, for obvious reasons, shut down during both the World Wars. Um, uh, it's fascinating to think for me about um, how little impact long-term that has had on those sports. Um, that I don't think, looking back now, we can say like that had a significant impact on that sport or changed the way. I mean, obviously we weren't there, but I'd be intrigued to know like how did it interfere with things and how did it 
like what happens when your mental energy is so devoted to something else, but also that you run into the banality of these things. Um, that at some point, like you can't be anxious about World War II all the time. And so what happens when you need some entertainment in there? Um, mm-hmm. So those are two examples where I think there's there's been relatively little long-term impact. One that I think has been very much on the flip side has been the earthquake in the World Series in eight, 1989 between the A's and the Giants. You know, we've all kind of seen those pictures of what happened afterwards. And I think that that, um, uh, that for me was a very... Uh, a very touching moment because I think we see how quickly when real tragedy strikes, the facade can uh, break down and we can really get to the core of who we are as humanity and see the frivolity of these things. Mm. Uh, so I, I really, that stands out for me as a, as a turning point. Um, uh, what, any, any feed thoughts on any of those? Yeah. So the earthquake in particular has always fascinated me and I think any human that watches video of it and coverage of it as it was playing out in real time has to experience something similar. And I think what you're describing is is what we all experience to some extent of how meaningless uh, political and socioeconomic division is when you're all in one place and tragedy is unfolding. And it, I don't have any answers right now or other anything other than just kind of questions, but how the immediacy of space plays a role mm-hmm. in that, in how it, it it highlights for me something that um, I was reading an interview with a guy named Jonathan Quick, who used to be the chair of the Global Health Council, and he has written many books on pandemics, and his his primary advice of like, okay, we have exhaustively studied pandemics in history and how they have played out. And what have we learned? We have learned that the most important thing is passing out dispassionate, accurate scientific information. Hmm. And I was thinking about that as the, uh, Olympic trial marathon was interrupted by Trump's announcement that someone in the United States had died Mm -hmm. from coronavirus and how (laughs) there were parts of it where he was just reading a script that was him doing his best to read dispassionate information dispassionately, but he couldn't do it. He just couldn't do it. He had to constantly make it seem like he was the one saving us from this and if we just trust him he'll have this and he went as far as in this announcement of someone just dying from coronavirus to make the point that he thinks it's the democrats that are politicizing and weaponizing this um but i guess all of that just to point that like that's in such contrast with what happened in that earthquake scenario uh, and how when something moves a little bit more slowly and it moves at a global scale how it, it it changes our understanding and it changes the dynamic of how we interact with it. Well, it is. I think you're right, and I think that there's a um, there's three two things that stand out to me there. One being, I think the immediacy of it changes it. And so I think about mm-hmm. um, the, the both the earthquake and Katrina and the Superdome for like mm-hmm. laying bare immediately the stupidity of these things that we love, um, mm-hmm. and that. You know, there's no one that's going to be like, 
oh my god why did they cancel the game um for when katrina came through oh my gosh they're ruining the superdome by having all these people in the in the stadium and right. all this stuff it's like it's you're you're immediately made aware okay there's this is very small on the scale of what's important in life mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. at the same time like you can respond very authentically and re- very humanly um, uh, or with great humanity in those moments because we're all there together we have to respond now to a crisis whereas i think what we're seeing now is that this is not a crisis immediately it's a it's a long-term game we're going to have to be prepared to talk about this for a long time and so really yeah the fear and and the and the panic of it are some ways the the most destructive components of this which is an interesting flip side to it i think um and i've forgotten the second thing i wanted to say which hopefully will come back to me at, at <laughs> but, oh, oh yes i wanted to share that so um i i also think it's fascinating to juxtapose this and i'd be interested to know my sister is a public health person's perspective on this, but, you know, thinking back, like in the early 1900s, right? So you had polio, you had all of these major, major illnesses that would affect people. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whooping cough, all these things that could be very deadly and had significant, uh, mortality or fatality rates. Again, I'm sorry. I don't know which one to use. Um, <laughs> but, um, people just went about their lives. Like people didn't hide inside because there was polio in their community. People didn't hide inside because people had whooping cough. You know, you just, you kind of had to deal with that. And so it makes me think about how our perspective on these things has changed. And not that I think we're doing anything wrong by responding in a very proactive manner to it. It just makes me think about, um, how, um, much more risk tolerant we had to be in in previous generations and how quickly that has changed Mm. that's fascinating and to your first point on kind of our our ability to realize very quickly that sports don't matter uh, from a certain perspective had me thinking about something that I feel like might could be interesting to make like a main topic one week and just look at a historical event. But uh, times when countries have purposefully left themselves out of the Olympics mm-hmm. as protests uh, and so kind of literally weaponizing sports and politicizing it to make a point uh, and how that kind of plays in the same space as a natural disaster does Mm -hmm. as it affects the sports world. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I I guess it's just that like uh, sports don't matter and they can matter Mm -hmm. uh, is like an interesting thing um, to kind of tease out a little bit. Yeah, and I think this is, um, uh, you know, I mentioned this before we came on the air, but one of the other examples I had was just, the uh, um, the way that racism is infecting uh, soccer in the major leagues these days. Um, and seeing yesterday, I turned on a Bayern Munich-Hoffenheim game and they were playing keepy-uppies and just shining the ball back and forth. It was the oddest experience I've ever had turning on the TV to watch a soccer match. And it was all because they um, uh, had seen the racist reactions of their fans and immediately shut it down. Um, didn't want to participate anymore. And that for me is a really interesting situation where that immediacy in the, in the, um, 
the way that we can see in the positive sense that, yes, these sports don't mean anything, but they can be a tool to hopefully change perspectives as well as they have been a tool to motivate and, and be used to generate hate as well. Mm. So to that story, I was trying to educate myself on it and I I didn't give enough time to it because I just started reading about it this morning. But was it the, the fans were protesting uh, the owner? His name is Dietmar Hopp, so as I saw. My understanding is that... Um and again, I'm sure this is infinitely more complex than I understand. But um, the Bayern Munich fans uh, unveiled a flyer making racist comments about um, the Hoffenheim owner. Um, mm-hmm. And then the the uh, Bayern players apparently immediately went over and the coach immediately went over and wanted to get them to, to put it away, uh, take it down. Uh, and so the referee canceled the game for a period of time, and when they came back, they were no longer competitive. I'm, it plays into it that Byron was already like five nil up at this point. I'm sure that that right. plays into it, but um, you know, seeing that response, I still think is is, is worth noting as a time when um, you know we can see uh, the sports world kind of coming to a, a halt, but also making a stand at the same time, which is perhaps a positive way. Mm-hmm. And so it makes me think about, is there a way to utilize sports as a tool for education and um, normality during this time of, of fear and, and potential panic? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a powerful image, right, of how often uh, we can tune into a professional sporting event and the seriousness of the fans combined with the seriousness of the athletes gives a somewhat misperception of the seriousness of the event. And so when they come outside of that context and do something completely outlandish, like just pass the ball back and forth with no intention to score a goal, there is incredible power gained mm-hmm. from that. Like at that moment, uh, those players have uh, an exceptional ability to kind of dictate what happens next. Um, so it, it it immediately leads to thinking about like what other versions of this are out there, and would we and can we envision uh, other versions of it? So I I think of um, you know Kaepernick taking a knee. Well, what if that started to happen in real time? Right, like not just during the national anthem, but like during plays, uh, if players just kind of refuse to abide by the rules, um, how, how much power they could they could glean from that. Uh, it also had me thinking about. Um, oh, I just forgot my second point. <laughs> Dang it! Nope, sorry. <laughs> Well, it it it, uh, uh, it makes me think about. Um, I, I think you listen to these as well. The, the Donald Sterling tapes uh, podcast yeah. and just the feeling from all the players about how looking back that they missed an opportunity um, and that they probably shouldn't have played that night and what a statement that would have made for them not to play basketball that night. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it, it's it's fascinating to think about what could be done when you both take a moment to recognize how this is not the most important thing going on, but it is important enough that we can, we can do something with it. Right. So I, I recall it now. Yeah. Um, 
So I was thinking about incentives as it relates to the canceling of sporting events. And one article I was reading about the potential of canceling the Tokyo Olympics this summer. And the article was pointing out that amongst the number of people in different spaces that do not want it to happen, right? no one wants it to be canceled, really. Um, I mean, these athletes that have dedicated their life mm -hmm. to trying to make it to this event, the hosts and all the work and the people that have built all the things, uh, there's a lot of labor in it at all levels. But this article... Uh, at least was raising the question very subtly of what do we do with the fact that NBC and all of its conglomerates have essentially billions of dollars invested in the Olympics? And what do we do with the fact that those that have the largest incentive also have incredible political reach? and are the ones that are ultimately going to be the, making the decision of if the Olympics should be canceled or not. And so there's like a problematic kind of relationship there mm. that those with the largest incentive also have the power to say yes or no. Um, we're going to do this and we're not. And I guess for me is, so NBC's statement so far is they're, all, the, all they've said is uh, – our number one priority is the safety of our employees. Um, so take that in whichever way, right? I mean, there's a lot of politics in that statement. But nonetheless, I, I kind of find a certain amount of optimism in it in that I feel like something like a pandemic makes clear that we actually do have a line and that we're like not <laughs> completely lost in globalism, that while there still is probably a whole lot of discrimination happening because of coronavirus, it's also getting us to a point to where I feel like if NBC tried to go against public persuasion or public perception and say, like, no, we're going to have the Olympics because we see fit to make a lot of money off of it, that there would be enough people to say, like, no, nah, this isn't a good thing. We're not going to support this. Maybe. Well, I think it's I interesting because I could see it going the opposite way. <laughs> Too, uh, and I'm wondering. I, I think it's interesting to think about corporate leadership in this way because I think mm -hmm. that there's a question that these places have to face. Like NBC could probably, on some level, force the IOC to have the Olympics somewhere else or postpone them or whatever it may be. Um, yeah, but it's fascinating for me to think about. Um, you know, there's a real chance that, like you said, that they kind of pressure the people that be to make these things go ahead um but there's also the real chance that they're the driver behind shutting it down because they recognize the the disaster that would be if they were the ones that pushed for it and it turned out to be a disaster and people lost lives right. and i mean they like this is the potential end of our television station if we push for this and it it backfires um like I can't imagine the public backfire that if they, it came out that they had pressured people to do do the Olympics, and then, you know, we had you know, and Usain Bolt passed away to do the coronavirus at the event. Like okay. you can't fathom the risk that they're taking in some ways to that, but they're also losing a bunch of money at the same time. So yeah, it it, right. it really is. Oh, and 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 you know, this all rears its head on a very small scale too because that's a that's a, the same indicative question that we're running into with 
what's going to happen if we all go into quarantine here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and we've got all of these people that are working hourly that all of a sudden don't have an income anymore. What do you? Uh, how do you understand that? And what happens to the corporation that makes a decision between cutting off power to people that don't pay their power bills because they don't have income versus those that might choose to forego that money? or whatever, because they uh, they recognized what's happening in that moment. I, it, I think there's so much complexity and so much probably poor and really worthwhile corporate decision-making that's going to happen here in the next few months. Yeah, it, it seemingly takes a highlighter to public relations mm-hmm. and how public relations are so monumental for these massive entities uh not only governments but these corporations that are bigger than a lot of world governments um so how nbc chose chooses to negotiate this essentially like pr nightmare for them uh i can't imagine the teams that they've put on it <laughs> um you know it's probably a, a lot of people that have had a lot of power for a long time uh, figuring out how how they're going to push through or negotiate this, but uh, like you said, it, it's it's all political uh, and is going to be political at some point in time, and those politics are going to seep into uh, individuals even and like how they negotiate mm-hmm. these spaces, especially if it's uh, something as drastic as quarantine. Yeah. Well, you've got a couple more examples, uh, do you? Yeah, so it's it's somewhat related to this power piece of it all. And uh, I was struck by two things, um, well, three things that are all related insofar as they incorporate the United States in the conversation very specifically. So in 2003, the Women's World Cup was moved from China to the United States because of the SARS outbreak in China. And then after 9-11, the Ryder Cup was pushed back a year. Uh, and still is pushed back year. So they used to be on even-numbered years, and now it's odd-numbered years. And that was almost entirely, as I could remember and have read about a little bit uh, preparing for this, uh, almost entirely because of Tiger Woods, uh, who said he would not fly to the tournament because he was worried to fly after 9-11. And so they essentially pushed back this entire tournament because Tiger Woods didn't want to fly. Um, which I'm not commenting on him wanting or not wanting to do that. What is significant is that his voice was that powerful and that it was an American voice and that the Women's World Cup was moved to America. And then also reading an article today about uh, where the Olympics could go if they tried to move it. Uh, And essentially all the experts they talked to said there's only one place in the world that could plan an Olympics and carry it out with only five months planning time, and it's the United States. Um, and these were worldwide experts these weren't just Americans saying this this was saying like the only country in the world that has the infrastructure in place to handle that this quickly is the United States so that's a lot of United States power something we already knew existed but I guess it just pointed pointed it out so clearly and that that seemed interesting to me Hmm, that is fascinating I will take issue with that last comment about the U.S. being the one place that could do it. I think that we can all acknowledge that the one place that could do it best is China, but that's the last place that anyone wants to go to. So um, right. Right. that is not a viable option. But um, it is fascinating because I think that in some ways the U.S. is uh, uh, driving 
driving things in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that it'll be fascinating to see who, who and what kind of gets engaged um, in that. And will we see, you know, like what happens if the U S decides to pull athletes out of the Olympics while everyone else is prepared to go ahead with it? What happens if the U S uh, chooses to, uh, um, uh, essentially shut things down uh whereas other countries do not and uh, i'm just uh, i think we're living in a place of fear because we don't we don't know enough yet um and -hmm. i think it's really fascinating to think about where that next step could be and what the role of uh, this behemoth that we consider our country is in that conversation where i'm sure we feel like we have an outsized role because in reality we probably do just because of how much money we pour into sports compared to these other countries. Mm -hmm. And in no way do I mean to kind of flaunt or (laughs) promote any sort of like conspiracy theory or like uh, promote the idea that like we should believe in conspiracy theories and that everything out there is a conspiracy. My point in saying that, um, I think what is one really interesting piece here is that there's this feeling that there should be experts out there that know exactly what's going to happen. Like, you know, there's this societal expectation that we're so smart and we're so capable now and that we have completely mastered our universe and mastered nature. And there's, there's nothing on this earth that human beings cannot master uh, if we come together and keep doing what we're doing. Uh, at least from a very Western colonial mindset, mm-hmm. and so that the that we don't know as of today if there's going to be an Olympics or not, I think is what is like so unnerving to many folks, um, and, and why it's such a big deal. And so again, I'm not saying that like we should think that about everything because we have mastered a lot. Uh, but I think that piece that we just don't know and there's no one on earth today that knows what's going to happen with the Olympics is evidence of how little we know um, in, in a context where we think we know everything mm-hmm. that becomes significant. Agreed. So let me pose this kind of final question to you. Um, and I, I guess I'll do it in two parts here. But one, um, kind of when you think about a world without sports or at least without spectators being in the fans and the stands for sports for six months, what does that mean to you? And do you think that that in the long term diminishes the way that we think about sports in terms of the importance that we put on it? Or does it uh, in some ways magnify the importance of sports as a lens for what is normal in society and so when it comes back it's even more important than what it was before that's such a good question i i could answer it now but i know i'm going to regret my answer later because it's such a good question i'm going to have like 25 thoughts about it <laughs> well, i guess my 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 first thought is i think we would miss it because sports are really fun and I think coming together in those public spaces is really meaningful and valuable, uh, especially when it's something for for something that is not immediately dangerous or unsafe or bad for the environment or bad for the world. So in that way, I think we would miss it a lot and see how important sports can be. Uh, on the other hand, we might see how 
outlandish some of the sports world has become. So in, I guess that leads me to this space where my conclusion is that it might be really good for us to take like a six-month hiatus and say and ask those questions and experience where we are on them. Sorry, my 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 child just ran into the room here. So sorry about that, everyone. <laughs> I love it. I hope she's okay. Oh, she's fine. She just got dragged yeah. back out of the room and didn't appreciate that. So she wanted to be <laughs> on there. Um, but I, I fall down in much the same space in that I think we're uh, we would very much miss it and we'd see the relevance of it um, mm-hmm. and really want to see it back. And so that makes me concerned in some ways. I mean, obviously I'm concerned about other components of it, but concerned in some ways that when it comes back, it comes back with even more of a vengeance and it becomes um uh, it becomes something that's even more in kind of your parlance of earlier something that defines who we are as humanity as our sports and that concerns me a little bit that we would go even further in that direction than we are now mm-hmm. yeah i completely agree with that yeah well any final thoughts on uh, the our buddy coronavirus here yeah, let's hope it's not too much more of a big deal. I, I agree. I, uh, I had a buddy who shared that, uh, uh, and hey, Jeff, I know you're listening out there, um, who shared that uh, CDC is telling folks to shave their beard, and I'm like, now nah, it's it's personal now, so um, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> uh, I, this can't be happening. So uh, hang on to it. <laughs> but yes, we'll we'll hope and pray that we get this under control. But um, I'll be. We, you and I, as we do, will I'm sure find some way to academically analyze everything as we go forward. Anyway, but indeed. <laughs> but uh, uh, what are you paying attention to this coming week? Uh, I'll be following the women's T20 World Cup. Hmm. Uh, so the semifinals and finals are this week. Uh, let's see: England, South Africa, India, and. Um, Sri Lanka, I believe, hmm. is the fourth team. Um, I may have gotten that wrong. England, South Africa, Australia, India. Australia's the other team. Um, a couple things about it. It's nearly impossible to watch legally in the United States. There's just like no coverage of it um, unless you have those, uh, I guess, BN Sports and Willow TV are the only ways to watch it. Uh, so buying special packages is the only way uh, outside of YouTube. And I would argue that the ICC, the cricket website, uh, is a is a great YouTube page. Hmm. Uh, I thought during the last few cricket tournaments that I've paid attention to, I found myself going to the YouTube page more than I did anywhere hmm. else. Uh, and it's the same with this. They... They are doing just great videos and great highlight reels and great little quick news stories and bios. Um, so it's just kind of a shout out to the ICC's uh, YouTube page. It's it's a great way to keep up with cricket. Uh, more than that, uh, I am fascinated and interested to see that a lot of the videos from the Women's World Cup are getting millions of views. Interesting. Uh, which I think I would not have expected. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's seemingly a pretty big audience for Women's World Cup, and I'm ignorant of women's cricket to a large extent. So 
it's kind of a learning experience for me getting to know it a little bit and it's fun very good well i hope you'll let us know who wins next week yeah will do what about you i am um uh, to kind of stick on the politics angle um this is not necessarily a sports thing but i think it is in some ways i'm kind of intrigued to look at how we treat super tuesday coming up here in the primary season like a sports contest and how the reporting yeah. on it is very similar to that. Um, and so I just, I find that whole connection fascinating and a little bit disturbing that that's kind of the analogy that we go to with this. Um, so just really intrigued to kind of follow that and see what those parallels look like this coming week. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a sports spectacle in so many ways, yeah. which I mean, you yeah. can't blame. I mean, the, the CNN Fox news, they all know, that people tune in to watch sports. And so they're like, well, if we can make it like sports, then we're doing something right here. Exactly. So, well, that being said, hopefully probably that not doesn't how, lead us. Hand, how we should handle. Politics. <laughs> yeah. Let's say, so, well, well, I did say last week that we were going to share an announcement at the end of this week. And I suppose I'll go ahead and share that. And that is that, we now have a website. It's still a work in progress, but uh, understandingsports.org or .com. I can't remember which one. Uh, that's bad. Um, it's org. It's org is the Sports and Society website. And so we uh, encourage you guys to follow. Uh, we're going to be doing some more interesting things with this this coming year. And so, uh, yeah, come and check us out. And uh, we'll have some written pieces up there as well. So uh, anything to share on that? Uh, any teaser to give anybody, Kyle? Yeah, just that if, uh, you know, how entertaining we are, like, uh, I, if you just are completely wild by our entertainment value, you'll just be continued to be wild on our website. Yes, it is. The, it's the clearly the uh, the most clickbaity things you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> oh, man, we are anti-clickbait, not on purpose. <laughs> We are we are perhaps so anti-clickbait that no one might click on our links. So, but uh, please do. They're they're I, we think they're interesting. Yeah. Oh man, that's funny. It'd be fun to satirize us. <laughs> oh, it'd be so easy. Yeah, <laughs> we're basically a satire. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. Well, why don't we wrap it up there? But. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for listening. Please give us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, you can follow us uh, on our understandingsports.org website, uh, and we'll hopefully have social media up soon. But in the meantime, uh, have a great week, and give us a rating and review again. So thanks, Kyle. Thanks, Ben. Bye, all.